Today's episode is sponsored by IT Pro TV. Start or grow your IT career with online IT training from IT Pro TV. And they have a special offer for Packet Pushers heavy networking listeners. Sign up and save 30% off all plans. How do you do that? ITPro.tv slash Packet Pushers to get that 30% off all plans. Use promo code Packet Pushers at checkout. Today's show is sponsored in part by InterOptic. Fortune 500 companies choose InterOptic optical transceivers to minimize the risk of network failures and maximize IT savings. InterOptic's transceivers are 100% guaranteed compatible with Cisco, Juniper, Extreme, Arista, and others, and available at a fraction of the cost. Work with the optics experts at InterOptic. Go to interoptic.com packet pushers to find out more. Welcome to Packet Pushers Heavy Networking. I'm Greg Farrow, and joining me today is Simon Sharwood. Simon is a well-known writer, editor, and analyst, and he is currently the Asia-Pacific editor for The Register, a well-known publication. Simon, thanks for joining me on the show today. How are you? I'm good, thanks, Greg. Thanks for having me. Now, a quick background on you. As far as I understand, you've been doing this for a couple of decades, covering the technology industry and writing about it at multiple publications. Am I right? Yeah, yeah. Look, I, I got my professional start uh, on PC Week in Australia in the mid-90s, but I had my very first bylines in the real Azure, which is oh. the Australian ZX Users Association, <laughs> for those of you who know and love and remember the wonderful Sinclair ZX range. Have you been scarred by this experience over the years, do you think? Of, of course. <laughs> so what we wanted to do today is uh, Simon's got this wealth of experience and uh, a perspective, and we wanted to pick a couple of random topics. This is not a technology show today, so if this isn't your bag, this might be the time to start thinking about pressing or going on to the next show. What we're sort of talking about is trends or the way the market is changing, or the way the industry is changing, uh, to give you some ideas on a high-level overview. This isn't meant to be um, a didactic view. That is, this is the conclusion that we've come. What we're trying to do is talk around the topics to help you think about it for yourself and help you to make your own decisions about what's happening in terms of the technology, the market, and and going on around us. Uh, So I think the first one I wanted to start up with, uh, Simon, is this idea that enterprise IT sales is changing. I think uh, for the last 20 years, we've seen the model that, you know, John Chambers uh, pushed along at Cisco and also um, widely used by HPE and Dell, which is that you use a very intensive sales model. You send out the salesperson to site to bang on doors. They, They wear out shoe leather, car miles, and sit on planes to get in front of the customer and ask for the purchase order. And this sales model, I think, is might be reaching the end of its life cycle. You know, instead of sending out that, what Cisco calls the four-legged sales beast, you know, the sales rep and the and the TME mm-hmm. to help solve all the questions. Now, that's my version of that is that, you know, we're seeing this disrupted by the internet generally, but more specifically by COVID because sending a salesman on site is like sending in a plague carrier. Is this something that you think is a problem too or am I on my own here? Yeah, absolutely, and 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 I had some anecdotal evidence of it uh, quite recently when I was um, in, in a watering hole uh, with some people who, let's just say, were entering a period of career uncertainty, um, having come from some big enterprise vendors, and and what they were telling me was that. 
big projects are still being sold. Hmm. Um, that kind of a sea level engagement is still happening because projects need to happen. Um, but what they were telling me was that the sales a little down lower in a business, sales to an IT professional just weren't happening because those IT professionals are now more than likely to be either working from home or stressed out of their brain for various reasons. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's this whole tranche of the sales machine that at the moment just doesn't know quite how to engage anymore. The engagement just isn't there. And, of course, the discretionary spend just isn't there anymore either. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's tough out there for some sales at the moment. And, mm. you know, I listen to a lot of quarterly earnings calls for my sins and <laughs> you hear the big tech CEOs yeah. saying that our sales team is having to learn um, new muscle movements, I think, uh, was a phrase. Uh, no. <laughs> new sales muscles, I think, was the phrase yeah. um, mm -hmm. from Pat Gelsinger at, at VMware. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, Michael Dell and, and Cisco and everyone they're trying to figure out how to make it work at the moment now you know historically the, the sales effort is land and expand yeah. um and if some of that ends up being shelfware well you know that's the customer's problem not yours because you've bought another yacht <laughs> exactly you know dump it pump it dump it and run away before the problem's you know, they realise what they bought has always yeah. been the historical model. And now, uh, but I think there's also a, a couple of other things happening here too is the SaaS model or the cloud delivered model. And the vendors are on the hook to make it work for a change. So the software that they, op that they sell, they also have to operate. And once it's in the cloud, there's two sides to that. A, there's nothing to install. So that day zero dump and, you know, there's the when you buy something, you spend six months or a year deploying it, and once you get through that phase, you don't want to undeploy it because you're too far down the down the cycle. You've spent all the money, you've done all the work, even though it doesn't work, you've still got to stick with it. Whereas something that's in the cloud, you can go and play with it for free. Doesn't cost the vendor anything to do the demo. Doesn't cost anything to give a customer a trial, um, and then all of a sudden they buy it, and the sales rep isn't a part of the sales cycle. Or if you're a company who's got an open source product, the customer might engage through the open source product. The marketing is often done in user groups or in Slack channels or by blog posts, you know, creating interests about the product. And this is where the smaller startups are really talented, is that they're able to sort of get that face-to-face -face with people and build loyalty. And where's the role of the outside salesperson? You still need the inside salesperson taking the phone call. So that when somebody says, oh, I've got this open source project and it's been working really well for me, now I need to buy the commercial version or I want some help with it or, you know, whatever it might be. And that's the next step. But that doesn't need the outside salesperson whose job it was to buy steak dinners and to get in front of the CIO yep. and say, where's my purchase order and how much are you going to spend next year? And that's going away. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned SaaS because I think that's really changed the engagement between vendor and user as well. Hmm. Um, I, was, I was chatting to an old acquaintance uh, a couple of years ago and he said, you know, Simon, when, when we first worked together, and this would have been probably in the year 2000, 2001, yeah. Um, a, a pilot project for us, uh, we had to go and buy $2 million of hardware for it. Mm -hmm. And then within six months, we'd have the hardware working and we'd 
kind of be, you know, in a position to start thinking about the software and start thinking about, you know, the outcomes it would actually deliver. Hmm. Now, he says, and that was a team of 30 people, by the way, so that was a $10 million engagement kind mm-hmm. of getting to mm-hmm. the starting line. He says, now um, I do minimum viable product on SaaS with two developers in two weeks and I get to charge $5,000 for it. Yeah. yeah. And, and if that minimum viable product works, they can scale that and deliver that to a practically infinite number of users in another two weeks. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, all, all without further sales engagement. Yep. And it's a completely different sales model. You don't have to sit there and sort of shove it down their throat, like, you know, making foie gras where they shove food down the goose's throat until the liver is fat enough so that they can fatten the carcass. And you don't have all that. And for vendors, they don't have all that cost either. So those salespeople are very expensive, typically around $200,000 each per head. To keep in well, I mean, there's 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 yeah. two things uh, there. I mean, w- one of the things that I've heard a lot of again yeah. on earnings calls yeah. is people are saying, "Yeah, uh, nobody's buying, but our cost of sale is down." Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But because partly of travel costs. Now, bizarrely, Accenture last week on its yeah. earnings call um, said one of the things they're missing is charging clients for travel. Wow. So. Yeah. Now, that's really interesting because if you think about it, everybody's just assumed that travelling was necessary. And we do have a topic which we're going to talk about later on, which is, um, is telework really the future? Maybe we should move that topic up to the next one because it kind of runs on from that discussion. Um, mm. If you're not travelling to and from site, who's doing the site work? So if you think about it, up until now, most enterprise ITs have outsourced technical expertise to somebody else, the reseller, the vendor, and the on-site person is often a ba- as caretaker, you know, a bit like a building janitor. Their job's to mm-hmm. let people in and out of the data centre or to keep a hold of the keys and, you know, let the people in and then when they're finished doing the work, you know, make sure that they're off-site. And then when it's left behind, they sort of just keep it ticking over. Are we seeing or are we going to see, do you think, a return to uh, in-house staffing of IT because if your skill set is to take this product as a SaaS or take this, then the actual skills can't be brought in casually. You actually need them in your team to speed up the communication like that. Does that make sense? Yeah, look, I think, I think, I think there's a few things here. I, I think the tools that the world has turned to for collaboration over the last six months um, have sufficed but are not fit for purpose. Uh, These tools were built for occasional interaction, not to replace the workplace experience. So I think what comes next is people start to think, okay, what do we use our workplace for in Mm. future? And how do we use these tools that we've got um, to handle different sorts of collaboration and different sorts of interaction at different times Um, and I think it's really hard to imagine that because nobody's lived it yet now there are certain organizations that have there are distributed organizations and some of those have gone well and some of those have gone poorly so um, if we have a look at open source collaboration Mm -hmm. um, quite early in the pandemic uh, Linus Torvalds you know popped up and said this this is how I've lived and worked for 20 years and it's kind of worked out pretty well for the projects I'm on. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, but what's good Um, for him isn't necessarily good for everybody, like is the immediate reaction. 
um, I think the flip side here and um, is that you've also relying on people to uh, change their ways. So one of the mistakes that I've seen a lot of people say <laughs> or do is to sit there and say, oh, but it's not the same. Um, you know, these new tools don't work for me or us and we're going to go back into the office and do what we've already done. But implicit in the statement is I don't want to change the way I'm working. So, for example, um, if you're going to work remotely or just in a distributed work fashion, your primary form of communication becomes written. And more importantly, it's not so much report writing, although that actually increases a lot because you're not in meetings talking to people. Um, you actually need to be able to write into a Slack channel or Microsoft Teams or P2 mm -hmm. or whatever it is that you're going to use. And that's a very different form of writing to writing in an email. And you need to be yep. able to not only write well and quickly and effectively, you also need to be able to write clearly and quite explicitly so that interpretation is accurate. You know, for, for years, I think we've all come to realise that text on a screen just, you know, strips out context, strips out nuance. Um, mm. I, I seem to always think the worst about something I see that's written on the screen. Mm. Um, and, and, and people are going to have to, you know, learn to live with that and learn to understand it all, all over again when mm. they're living in text for, for much, much, much more of the day. Yeah. Um, well, I only highlight that because that's the, that's one transition. There are other transitions, of course. Um, you can't just um, rock up to someone's desk who's sitting there working on something else and interrupt them because if somebody's working yep. remotely, they can just ignore you when you type at them. You might actually have to wait. And I know a lot of people when I was in IT couldn't – if they couldn't talk to you right then, they'd forget about it. And mm -hmm. a lot of people – I think there's a couple of things in that Implicit in that statement is the assumption that having a desk and locating a team together in a single building has no cost. And in fact, it has a cost because if your team is distributed, they actually have more time to work. They can work more effectively. As, a, as the companies that do this say, it just we're able to work much more efficiently than we could before. Uh, and the costs of desks and chairs and offices, uh, I think it was uh, the chairman of JP Morgan was saying that they are going to be saving something like uh, hundreds of millions of dollars a year. That's recurring revenue because they're now planning to shut down three or five buildings or four or five buildings in New York and just disparate, just disperse everybody. There's no point in that. They're finding that it's working well. Now, I'll bet that in the same organisation, there are other people out there saying, from the same organisation saying, oh, but it's not working as well or our companies aren't working well. The one, the favourite one I have is, oh, it's the casual conversations in the corridors, which I'm going to miss because those are really valuable conversations. And my response to that is, if your business organisation is operating successfully because of random conversations that you've got lucky enough to have, there's something deeply flawed in your thinking that you're not seeing that? Yeah. Well, I, I think something else that's going to come up is, is um, you know, this, this might sound like an odd concept, but um, intergenerational equity. So I'm I'm at a point in my life, and and, and I've been alive uh, during a time when it was possible for me to acquire quite a large and comfortable home. Mm -hmm. um, I have a space in, in which I can work. In, in, indeed, I, my wife, and my two children all have a space in which we can work um, without getting on each other's or getting under each other's noses. Mm -hmm. um, if if you're somebody um, you know who's suddenly sharing a kitchen table for work. With yeah. two or three roommates, um, you probably want to get back to the office. Yes. Um, 
or you at least want to get into some kind of workspace. Now, um, in order to turn a quid a few years ago, I spent a bit of time reporting on the contact centre industry. Um, And one of the things that the contact centre industry actually did quite early was um, start to consider small kind of neighbourhood work hubs um, where people get the benefit of not having to work in their home in that contended space Mm -hmm. um, but don't have um, a long commute. Uh, and so, also don't have the well. A lot of, of those contactor centres would use cheap labour, so be in the outer suburbs, and it didn't make yeah. sense to have make them commute all the way into central city. So if you set up a, you know, have five hundred people in two floors of a building in central centre of the city, have three offices out west, and then all of a sudden you can get better staff and pay them less wages. Yeah, and look, the big issue in contact centres is um, is staff retention. So most contact centres will churn about a quarter of their staff a year. Um, I once interviewed the the manager of a call centre that did nothing but traffic fines um, and he had, I think, 0% customer satisfaction um, (laughs) and staff turnover of about 90%. And and I said to him, this is career suicide taking on this job. And he said, no, 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 no. all I have to do is is do this for 18 months and then I can go and be a contact centre manager somewhere else. Um, And he'd taken the job young because nobody else wanted to do it. Um, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. That's that, that's an old story. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think I think what you're saying there is that the future is here, but it's not evenly distributed, which is the great William Gibson. Yeah, line. yeah, yeah. The, In the, the sense the, that the William Gibson line. And I think again, you know, we talked about. I said earlier that people had to change their ways to say they had to learn writing. If you're going to work from home or work where you live, uh, you know, working where you live you're probably going to have to consider changing the way your house is built in some way. And that might mean building a little shed out the back that you work in to separate the the two or converting a bedroom, you know, putting a partition in it and having a separate space, which is soundproof for some reason. Uh, Houses are designed the way they are because they were designed on the assumption that, you know, somebody would leave for work. There was no need for small Mm. private areas. Uh, Mm. And it's not impossible. I've actually seen some articles where, they will sell you boxes that you can come and deploy in your living room, like these self-assembled, yep. stand them up, and then you walk inside and shut the door and it becomes a mini office sort of a thing. I think we'll yeah, see look, more I, of those yeah. solutions uh, yeah, coming I, out. I, I think we will. I, I think above all, what we'll get about two years from now is it's going to be much easier and, and much more acceptable to want to work from home a couple of days a week. Um, you know the things the, the things that I and my family have missed is um, you know particular very good noodle bars in the city um, <laughs> that, that uh, you know I, right, right 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 now I would I would kill for Jimmy's recipe laksa um, down at Circular Key um, yes. just opposite between Victoria Building there yeah so um, I have a range of, don't don't let's don't let's start talking about the good things in life because we're, because yeah, they, yeah. that's and, a long way away yeah. right at yeah. least a year away before you'll be back to a new a new normal or, or you know where things are starting to reopen i think yeah well here here in new south wales we're actually kind of okay i mean restaurants are open pubs are open 
Um, we're pretty strict at, uh, you know, a small head count in those venues. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then the venues try and hustle you through so they can do, you know, two or three sittings a night rather than uh, let you... Uh, Sit around. Nurse, yeah. nurse a bottle for a long time. Um, but, yeah, I mean, certainly, certainly in other places um, where, where there are more cases, yeah, it's going to be a long time before you nip out for noodles at lunchtime. We interrupt this conversation just for a moment to tell you about a sponsor we think you'll want to hear from, IT Pro TV. A recent MIT study found that IT occupations have grown by 19.5% between 2004 and 2019. That is more than eight times the growth rate compared to other jobs. Now, you might think that just having a college degree, that, that's the thing. That's the key that unlocks the door to big earnings. But it is not as simple as that. In fact, since 2000, earnings for those with a college degree have flattened a bit. On the other hand, earnings have actually grown a lot for individuals working in IT, which I know, a lot of you know this. You're in IT, you're already studying for a career in IT, you've got your sights set on those big earnings. Well, IT certifications are a good way to help boost your chances of landing that dream job. That's how I started climbing the IT career ladder years ago. IT Pro TV has you covered. From CompTIA and Cisco to EC Council and Microsoft, more than 4,000 hours of on-demand training. Engaging hosts, they are going to present the information to you in a talk show-like format, and they are live every day. And those shows go studio to web in 24 hours. Courses are conveniently listed by category, certification, and job role. And you can consume them however you want. You want to use your Chromecast or your Roku or your Apple TV, and of course, streaming via iOS or Android apps. Yeah, go for it. You can consume all of the IT Pro TV training content any way you like. Learn IT, pass your certs, and get a great job with IT Pro TV. Visit itpro.tv slash packetpushers for 30% off all plans. Use promo code packetpushers at checkout. That's IT Pro dot tv slash packet pushers and use promo code packet pushers at checkout one more time itpro.tv slash packet pushers and use promo code packet pushers at checkout and you will save 30 percent off all plans and now back to today's episode um, my guess is that telework or remote work or distributed work i like to think of it as distributed work myself i think it will become the new normal for most people and yes. but like you, that will involve three, more than half the week will be working distributed away from the office and you'll get together with your team one or two days a week and that will be the normal. Yeah, so, I now, think, that's I not, think that doesn't mean that everybody will be working like that. It just means that I think that's the, that's the broad trend and your, your mileage may vary. Yeah, yeah. I think Sundar Pichai from Google a couple of days ago gave an yeah. interview somewhere and he said... Um, uh, I, I think on-sites will become the new off-site. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's that's how I see it. And it'll happen every week. You'll have an on-site once a week for yeah. six yeah, hours you know, or something. And, and no, I, I, I remember when, when my kids were really little uh, and, and I was working part-time. It was, you know, it was actually quite fun to go into the world of adults a couple of days a week. Yeah, <laughs> I, I remember that as well. Getting into the office and getting away from the wasn't so bad. And I think that also means that your approach to your personal life will have to change. Let's not forget that um, once you've um, 
got all this time where you're not in a car commuting or spending hours after work in a bar or at a coffee shop with you know with the people you work with you've mm. got all this extra time what do you do with it do you spend time in your local community like so many local communities have said people don't participate in the communities anymore they don't mm. help you know i think there's a whole resurgence that's going to happen and where i live for example there's no coffee shop where i live in 5 miles in any direction it's only a matter of time until somebody opens one up and then people like me walk up there every day and sit in it just to get out yeah. of the house. Anyway, so new opportunities. Uh, you uh, raised a topic about Smartniks. You think that Smartniks are about to get big. Yeah. So, look, Smartniks have been around for, for, for a while. I mean, initially they were kind of a component uh, that people would, you know, pop into a firewall, pop into a load balancer, pop into another appliance. You know, vendors like Marvell would sell you a chip that's really great at handling I.O. and it would make it so much easier for you to build a firewall. Now, what we know is that this approach eventually got baked into a, a neck and that the neck then grew a brain. So people oh. started welding together a system on a chip and a neck. And the hyperscale clouds have, have figured out that that's a really good place for them to do security, uh, to really um, get their exotic cloud networking going. Um, and they're keen on doing this because by offloading it into a smart neck, um, then they can rent you more CPU that aren't mm. doing the firewalling, aren't doing the networking. Um, so NVIDIA's been quite keen on them for a while um, yeah. and over the last 24 hours, VMware has announced that it's going to run uh, NSX and vSAN and ESXi in a smart NIC. So for me, you know, we, we've seen what the big clouds have done with them and when somebody like VMware comes along, it, it really kind of gives the industry a signal that they're going to be manageable, they're going to be addressable. Yes. Um, and, a- um, you know, I think they've made a bit of a market here. Now, you know, in, in the next couple of years, VMware will get their stack running on these things. Mm. For me, it gets interesting when all of those network function vendors and all of those storage vendors start to write for this target as well. And then you get a different mode of doing all the things you've got to do in your data centre in this different place. Um, so I think this week, you know, will probably be seen as a really important moment in the mm. life of the SmartNIC. Um I think it's going to be more important and, and there's going to be more relevance to it in a couple of years' time when, you know, Checkpoint announces Checkpoint or SmartNIC um, yeah. or, or, or a couple of the story. You know, so NetApp um, announces... Because, well, um, and as you say, from, most of those products, are, most of their uh, firewall hardware is yeah. some sort of motherboard, usually yeah. a very consumer-level Intel motherboard, bog-standard, off-the-shelf model. Yeah with a fancy NIC, and the NIC is doing all the acceleration. And it's yeah. usually a commercial NIC that you can just go and buy from somewhere. It's not a custom ASIC. It's just they've written the device drivers for their firewall. Yep. And that's all a hardware firewall is, is yeah. a fancy piece of software driver to do the firewall rules in silicon. Yeah. Um, th- I think the interesting part about the trend to smart NICs, which I've been talking about for about a year and saying it's not just the offload uh, they're also going to be used for storage processing, which is what they're mm-hmm. talking, you know, running vSAN in the NIC. Because why is the CPU? The CPU is actually a really bad place to run things like CRC checks 
to validate the storage so that when you write the storage away, you actually check that the storage was written correctly. Mm-hmm. Whereas you could have a NIC, uh, a smart NIC, with a custom piece of CPU just to do the storage mathematics. Uh, yep. And that, I think, is a radical change from where we are today uh, in lots of different ways, to be fair. And, and, and when you look at, you know, a, a many-cored SOC and you look at all of the efforts mm. that are going towards having kind of, you know, one container per core, um, you know, you, you kind of get into this world where you say, okay, oh, look, here, here comes an operation that needs this function, get that function down onto that core, make mm-hmm. it happen. Oops, here comes something else that needs a bit of resource to do something else. And you can, you know, leave all of that quite intensive action out there in the accelerator, mm-hmm. let your workload run, you know, let, let your Xeon run your workload. I think it's also important too because we've seen a lot of cost associated with x86 servers and the BIOS and the updates that you have to keep fitting to the hardware. So mm-hmm. companies like uh, HP, Dell, and Cisco have these software feet like overrich. I think there's too many features in an x86 server. You really don't need all of the functions that you want. Uh, but because they've got this complex operating system running in the silicon, you're constantly required to fit these updates to the to the NIC, to the CPU, to the BIOS, to some sort of to the base processor. You know the the the, the BMC, the baseband motherboard controller and all that. Mm. And if you can just move all that into the NIC, then the server becomes uh, part, you know, part A, all of the CPU resources available for whatever the workload is, whether it's a Kubernetes instance, you know, a Linux with a Kubernetes, whether it's an ESXi hypervisor, whether it's, you know, selling it off to a developer and saying, just run whatever you like on it. And, and it moves the on-premises cloud much closer to the public cloud because um, there's a great article published by Werner Vogels, who's the CTO of Amazon AWS, right? And he's talking about their AWS Nitro and how over the last five years they've taken it from being a network accelerator to actually being the security because it also has a trust system in it as well. They actually run a cryptographic trust module on that NIC uh, and they also do, as, as you say, the storage and everything. So in a sense, VMware isn't innovating here this was already being done by somebody else uh, AWS oh, abso- started- ab- ab- absolutely but but done invisibly uh by, oh by no AWS, they were talking so. about this four years ago and saying this oh, is where we're in, in, oh yeah um, uh, visibly in terms of describing it to the public but invisibly yeah. in terms of the user experience yeah and yeah. and what vmware is now doing is it's saying okay so um you know, we're, we're, we're going to put this to work and we're going to make it possible for you to put it to work if if you choose yeah and I think I wonder where this leaves. There's a bunch of companies out there that are, you know, like Pensando, who are putting an SDN controller on NICs. Uh, and there's a couple of others. Fungible is another one, uh, mm. who are got fancy NICs. They strapped an SDN controller onto them and said, uh, "We're doing data centric computing," uh, which is sort of uh, I read this as Silicon Valley speak for. We don't know which market segment to attach first, so we're going to say we do it all, and then we'll see. <laughs> we've got a product but we don't know who wants to buy it Uh, but we've got a lot of money somebody's given us 300 million to manufacture it to design it and manufacture it i mean in the in the case of pansando it's very interesting because they already did it once before they did it with the vic inside of cisco ucs and all they've done is basically copied that model again uh you know like the cisco ucs is the key feature is the vic in it that was doing fiber channel over ethernet and then they strapped on a software controller 
in the case of the Insight Manager, what it's called today, to be able to basically get some good networking in a server. Everything else is just bog-standard Intel. Um, mm. And this time they're trying to turn it into something which is a next-gen cloud architecture. And now they're today I see they've announced that they're cooperating with Project Monterey, which means yep. I wonder how much they've been caught flat-footed with the extra features because their silicon as far as I'm aware, doesn't have the offload capabilities. It was very much like a, a, a flow controller engine, not a processing engine. Yeah, look, I think I think the inclusion of Pensando there is is notable um, because the the other partners in this so far are, are larger and more mature. Um, so I suspect VMware sees something there that it admires and or thinks is necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I was a Pensando investor, I think that could make me quite excited. Yeah. But there's also Fungible and there's another half dozen companies out there with SmartNICs who could also play in this space. Yeah. Well, you know, some, Accolade, some will be acquired, some will thrive, some will die. Yeah. Accolade, SolarFlare. You know, uh, Mellanox, of course, which is now part of NVIDIA, yep. has their Bluefield neck. Yep. So it's not like that. There, there's plenty of choices out there for customers, potentially Yeah, and Ma- Ma- Marvell are just popping out a press release that went, we've been doing this for ages and we've sold a million of them, by the way. <laughs> and Intel, uh, with the barefoot yeah. uh, t- uh, Tofino, they don't have the neck, but they have all of the technology necessary to be able to make a smart neck, of course. Yeah, and of course, the the other thing about Intel is they've got um, some of their product in this space is ARM, not x86. Yeah, well, I think you know this also goes with the bigger trend of what Nvidia calls accelerated computing, which is yep. moving away from the CPU. So Nvidia has been promoting a model of yeah, yeah, the CPU is great, but what you really want is a GPU. A TPU, you know, an AI chip or machine learning chip, you know, of some sort. Uh, and now you want a DPU, something to do the data processing, something that does the accelerates the networking, accelerates yeah. the storage. So what's 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 the next PU that Nvidia is going to come up with? And and can we circle that back to the discussion about enterprise sales? <laughs> well, I think this the story might be there. Remember a rack scale architecture from five years ago? Where instead yep. of buying at a server at a time, we'd start to get back towards the rack scale at a time. Mm-hmm. Um, it might be another time for that idea. Now, that idea has come and gone pretty every five years for the last 20 years, I want to say. Um, yep. that's, it's, you know, and it keeps coming back. And uh, it's possible that this might be its time in the sun in the sense that instead of buying one RU uh, with a CPU and an IR, you know, and then and some memory and some I.O., maybe what you want to buy is six RUs and inside of there is a bunch of CPUs, GPUs, TPUs and data processing units and you start to get more into a software configurable architecture. Yeah, um, composable architecture. I think HPE were calling it for a bit. Yeah. Um, and and they, they, come they, back they around. That, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, HPE today was claiming that SmartNICs is, you know, what composable infrastructure has become. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not too sure about that, but, you know, I, I can I can get on board with the idea of the rack scale architecture in the sense that yep. um, I feel that's a viable model. The question here is what happens to the small enterprises who are subscale? Because uh, that big, bigger, heavy stuff goes works pretty well for larger companies, and it's almost as if most of the incumbent vendors or the most of the established vendors 
are only focusing at the big end. Like uh, a lot of big companies are moving into the cloud and mm. there's tier two clouds and then you've got the mega enterprises who are big enough to build their own clouds and they seem to be targeting those. But what about the mid-sized enterprises, say with 50 servers? Are they just going to go to the public cloud or are we going to see solutions for them or are they just going to come later? Oh, look, the usual thing, isn't it, is, you know, it, it, it takes a few years for it to get comfortably productizable so that it's, it's not too horribly complex for an organisation with 50 servers. So at, at some point in the future, there will be um, the equivalent of a Nutanix for this hmm. stuff. Yeah. Um, that, that, that comes along and does it well and either gets to uh, be a unicorn or uh, be a business unit mm-hmm. and so- a long-forgotten logo. Yeah, I sort of saw Nutanix as this process of, I think there's a, a long-standing trend of where everything disaggregates and then re-aggregates or bundles Absolutely. and then unbundles. And Nutanix, part of, well, the way Nutanix put the bundle back together was they started off by saying, well, why don't you just include the storage into the virtualization? And that was their first mm-hmm. move to market. And then, of course, mm-hmm. VMware followed on fairly quickly because VMware is a fast follower like Cisco, like HP, like Dell. They wait for someone yep. else to come up with the idea and then they try and follow as quickly as they can. Um, and then Nutanix said, well, okay, well, we'll stop using your hypervisor and we'll start developing our own. And that gave them control of the stack. And then all of a sudden they mm. looked like just another VMware. And, <laughs> uh, only, and only, only with more complex financials. Yeah, they're funny. So you concur that Nutanix's financial situation is extremely interesting? Well, off the top of my head, their their revenue run rate is about a billion a year. They've got a good subscription pipeline, but they're kind of intermittently profitable and they just took another $750 million investment hmm. that I think can be converted to equity. Yeah. So... Um, can we spell tax loss, tax write-off? Well, you know, that's, <laughs> or, that, that's kind of a hot topic in America at the moment, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. Um, so, you know, have, have Nutanix done a really good job pioneering um, a, a good way to do compute at that kind of, you know, mid-range mm. scale? Um, absolutely. Um, is it yet... Um, you know, can, can you definitively at this point say this is a thriving, long-term, profitable business? That's unclear to me, yeah. Yeah. Mm. They have a lot of debt, over $2 billion worth of debt on $500 million in revenue. Yeah, but money's cheap. Yeah, money is I mean, cheap, you know, and a high yeah. valuation. People are hoping for growth, but it's hard to see where yeah. the growth is when VMware keeps... Um, you know, whatever they do, VMware can do it, does, does the same thing. Yeah. You know, vSAN yeah. and, you know. All, all, all this stuff makes more sense to the people who manage my pension fund than it does to me, so <laughs> I'll leave it to them. We interrupt this podcast for a brief word from Packet Pusher sponsor InterOptic. InterOptic has been the trusted optical transceiver supplier for many federal, state, and local government networks and Fortune 500 companies. They provide friendly, U.S.-based, OEM-agnostic networking expertise to help you choose the best optics and fiber to future-proof your networks at the lowest cost. Why continue to pay OEM prices for optics? Talk to the experts who will deliver brand-equivalent transceivers at a fraction of the cost. InterOptic can help you and your team create a more nimble physical layer. Their optical transceivers are guaranteed 100% compatible with Cisco, Juniper, Extreme, Arista, and other switches. InterOptic physically tests every single transceiver before it's shipped, and their transceivers are built to the exact same quality standards as the OEMs and typically come from the same manufacturing lines. 
That means you can purchase the same, if not better performing, optical transceivers tested and designed by engineers who truly understand the specifications critical to your network at a fraction of OEM costs. It's time to take control of your optics purchases with InterOptic. Find out how at interoptic.com slash packet dash pushers. That's interoptic.com slash packet dash pushers. And now back to the conversation. All right. Well, we touched on uh, politics uh, briefly. Uh, one of the issues that I've been raising over on the Network Break podcast, which is the weekly show that I do where we look at the news, I've been looking forced, really. I always wanted to keep politics out of technology, but increasingly politics and tech companies and technology generally start to intersect. And uh, particularly U.S. politics lately because the U.S. government has shown that it's willing to take actions on behalf of U.S. interests um, into organisations that are either, A, outside of the U.S. or inside the U.S. And you wanted to raise this, so why don't you lead out with how you see this? So, look, I, I think there's, um, th- there's a whole lot going on. In, in this field at the moment. I mean, one one is um, I wrote this satire piece a little while ago in which you know, an aide says to Donald Trump um, that the Huawei ban is in place, sir. Um, you're doing great. We're going to cripple Huawei. And then another aide pops up and says, actually, we're still sending technology to China every day, Mr President. It's called open source. Uh, in fact, NASA... Uh, wrote most of the code uh, that powers Alibaba and Baidu and Tencent when Mm. when it created OpenStack. Um, So I think potentially um, if we look at what's happening in the world today, China says that it wants to be more self-sufficient in tech. India uh, is saying it wants to be self-sufficient in everything from silicon to games and everything in between. Uh, Mm. Russia has made noises about this over the years. So I think we could be heading into a situation where where different nations or perhaps different blocks of nations almost start to define technology that's permitted and technology that's forbidden. Um, And and, and that's a very different world. I I think there there could be legitimate questions asked about open source in that world. I mean, what exactly is IBM doing? You know, IBM and Microsoft (laughs) and Cisco and everyone doing, giving giving code to China every day and ingesting and running Chinese code. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. No, um, no, but I, I think those questions, you know, well, it, could could well a, start to be asked. It, it it is a question, and it's also a little bit hypocritical because a lot of US companies um, supply components to Chinese companies who then sell the products on to other people. Now, yeah. uh, take for example Infinera, who's a maker of silicon photonics components, very useful in telco gear. And they are now suffering serious losses because they can't sell their components to Huawei or ZTE to be included mm. in their equipment, which is then sold to Africa. So there's are the the trade systems are very intertwined, and any change to the status quo, there will be winners and there will be losers. Of course, so yep. you know the exclusion of Huawei from the US also means that Cisco and uh, Nokia and Ericsson and Samsung, interestingly, have now got a much greater access to the telco customers there to sell their products without having a price competitor or a price leader. So Mm -hmm. they can charge more and the American consumer will eventually have to bear those prices in the product. They can charge more for for whatever it is they're going to sell because they don't have to be competitive with Huawei is the logical 
the logical conclusion. Um, I mean, even the EU is heading down this path. I've read a number of uh, articles and a number of EU uh, government reports where some number, now this isn't by no means a policy or a strategy, but they're saying, like, we need to start considering taking steps to protect our internet from outside adversaries. Yeah. They're not being saying who, but, you know, China would be one. North Korea is the obvious one. Um, obviously, Russia, with Russia being on the border, taking out the internet in the EU would be uh, a sweet, uh, a, a natural precursor to any sort of aggressive action, you know, kinetic action. Um, so I do think um, it's going to be an interesting time. And you mentioned open source, but I'm thinking about the internet. If you think about all of the internet bodies that... Uh, are caretakers of internet standards like ICANN, the ISC, ISOC, ITF. There's dozens of those little bodies out there that are non-profits, and they're all based out of the US. If the US government was to make a decision to unilaterally take them back under its wing and treat them as instruments of government policy, that would be potentially quite disruptive to the internet standards process. Yep. It sure would. I think. I think the interesting thing that that, that isn't discussed as well is in in in, in the years of, of of trouble and strife around Huawei, I'm, I'm yet to actually see uh, a public technical assessment that says, "Yeah, this stuff is sending stray packets somewhere weird." What it always keeps coming down to is the Chinese laws that compel Huawei to act as directed by the state. Now, mm. Huawei, you know, has sworn until it's blue in the face in a dozen countries in front of a dozen parliaments um, that it will obey the law of the land where it operates. Mm. Um, so I've always wondered, okay, so who, who does have that, that higher duty? Um, and, and to me, the... the the interesting risk to consider is not the technology, but the people inside the business who provide that technology. Yes. And um, if I am a bright young thing who gets uplifted to spend a couple of months at HQ in Shenzhen mm. um, and perhaps does something a little unruly um, in mixed company one evening... Yes. Might I, might, might I be prevailed upon to um, share what I see <laughs> when I visit customer data centres? <laughs> yes. Um, well, or, I think it's, or, or, I think it's or, even or more HR invidious. file goes dirty. Yeah, I think I wrote an article on this a couple of years ago where the problem with Huawei could be software but seems unlikely because the complexity of the software would prevent the injection of backdoors without usually without necessarily causing problems. That's not to say that it's not impossible. Mm. I would just tend to the Razor's Law, where usually what we find is when people inject backdoors, it actually causes other things to break. I My greatest risk with Huawei is, for example, here in the UK, Huawei had a very big presence in the BT network, uh, and that big presence didn't actually just include equipment. It also included, I think at last headcount, 1,500 engineers offered for free because equipment was often a very poor quality and very unstable. And Huawei's answer to that was to continue to throw headcount at it and to write code in the UK that would fix it and to provide technical support. And they were mostly yeah. Chinese engineers shipped in from China. And, and to me, those people now have 
usernames, passwords. They know what the network looks like. They know where the buildings are. They know the secret locate. Like if you're inside the BT network, you actually know where the um, the secret locations are, the secret data centers. Yeah. All right, and you have access to classified material. I my view has always been is it's that part of the piece puzzle, which is the security weakness. Not focusing on the yep. hardware and the code is actually not where the weakness was. It's in the the systems that sit behind it. Yeah, hmm. and 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 who who in in all organisations has has a loyalty outside the organisation and and a reason to want to share that information. So. And, you know, if I had a bunch of U.S. employees inside my organisation, I would have exactly the same thing. Because if you don't think that yeah. if the U.S. government, you know, if a Fed talks up, walks up to a U.S. citizen and says, hi, my name's John from the John Smith from the FBI, we need you to do yeah. this for us, do you think they're not going to do it on yeah. in most, you know, what's your opportunities there? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it... it, it... <laughs> Or I, British I citizen, or watched. French, or you know, <laughs> you know, I think, whatever. I think we've yeah. all watched all watched too many spy dramas. Um, yeah. But you know, it, it, it doesn't take a huge amount of information, um, or you know, somebody super stealthily living undercover to just make a little bit of difference and to keep the information and intelligence yeah. flow coming. So, so I, I actually think you know, this uh, was two or three weeks ago. We saw Russia announcing that it's isolating its own internet at the physical level. By actually, partly because um, they are starting to take control of the physical circuits that leave their country. So you can't now run a major trunk out of Russia without applying to the federal government for permission, the federal Russian government. Uh, mm. And they're now taking control of those to make sure that they're in specific locations that suit their uh, secret services is the assumption. But now they're also taking uh, steps to block traffic, which is private. So we've seen the INTF respond by announcing new protocols like DNS over HTTPS, TLS 1.3, SNI, where it hides the domain name inside the encrypted header. You only see the IP address in the frame. And they're now saying, well, we're going to block those forms of traffic for national security interests. So I think the internet is facing a period of balkanization um, and when I did an interview with Vince Cerf, we did a, an interview on the IPv6 Buzz, Buzz podcast three or four mm. weeks ago, a really interesting show if you want to listen to it. And Vint, uh, I said to Vint, do you think that this, this is a, a, a major risk? And he said, yes, I do, and I'm very concerned about it, or words to that effect. So hopefully I'm not yeah, putting look, words in his I, mouth. I, I think that you know, everywhere around the world, uh, overtly or covertly, we, we see nations again and again look for ways to be able to essentially uh, poke their nose into the internet. So, I mean, down here in Australia, um, we've got the law that can compel um, an equipment vendor um, to work with the government to make it possible to do an intercept. Uh, there are similar laws in a couple of other countries around the world. We know that you know the the, the apparatus of the NSA um, in the USA, as exposed by Edward Snowden, uh, you know, basically had its fingers in everything, uh, up to and including being able Governments to have enormous Cisco power out of the factory. unimaginable yeah. power. Right? Yeah. They can coerce you to do anything at the end of the day. They have the resources to do anything, anything yeah. from forcing you to obey the law uh, to forcing, you know, to creating detention camps and putting, you know, many countries have detention. Australia has a massive Australia detention does. camp where it captures immigrants so. and puts them offshore. Uh, the US has the same sort of thing where they're detaining illegal immigrants and putting them in detention camps. China, of course, has multiple detention camps, the most high profile of which is the Uyghur ones. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a universal 
you know, some of these are worse than others, by the way. So you know, there's a sliding grey of morality going on. Uh, by all means, don't uh, you know? I don't. I recognise that and and accept that. But you, you can't say one way or the other that something is. You know, these governments have enormous power. The ability, say, for example, for North Korea to do what it's done in the spite, in the face of all of the um, things, just is a sign that you really can't control countries or states at that level. It's, um, uh, you know, but when, when, when the internet got big in the mid-90s, you know, we were told it would be this wonderful conduit for freedom of speech and to, and to connect yeah. people around the world. And, uh, and, and, and what did we get? You know, the, the great firewall and Facebook. Yay. Yeah, it does seem to be, you know, we might have reached the other, uh, maybe this is the darkness before the dawn. Maybe there's some, as we go through this period of, of realising that open access has its as much, you know, much bad as good associated to it. Like, we've never been more informed. The power of Wikipedia to find information or the ability to look up healthcare information um, of reasonable quality is is a great good, but at the same time, it's also brought us things like QAnon and and the the the, the faux media where people just make stuff up. Yeah, yeah, or you know, just just run run their agenda and make make mm. no attempt at balance. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, so and, do you and, think and sometimes do do that? You know, because that's that's a way to turn a quid. Yeah, that is. Yeah, a lot of people doing it just to make a make money, which is, you know, if yeah. that's the way you're feeding your family, well, maybe so. Um, so let's try and wrap this up as we get to the end of today's show. What do you think, uh, Enterprise IT, you think it's going to be continuing or is it all just going to go to the cloud? What, have you got some thoughts in that area? Oh, look, I, I, I suspect that there will always be good reasons to, to have, you know, something on-prem. On um, I, I know you're of the opinion that uh, the, the, net, the, the global networks we would have to build in order to put everything in the cloud are, yeah. uh, uh, are unimaginably vast. I think that SaaS has actually been a, a really big thing because SaaS has created a, a different class of buyer and a different class of user. Um, and, and it's actually really interesting going to a Salesforce event as somebody who's kind of come up through enterprise IT because um, the people are dressed differently and they talk differently <laughs> um, and, 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 they, and they don't care about the blinking lights um, and, and they don't care what's under the hood. So I, I think that there's kind of an ongoing, you know, sassification of, of IT, and and the, the the important thing that comes with that, and we're starting to see that at the moment with the the, the low code movement, mm. um, is eventually it, things become less and less arcane, um, and the skill becomes more abstract and less technical. I think that's the the, the long term future. But you know, for, for the next couple of years, we're all going to be busy trying to figure out how to run workloads on SmartNICs. Yeah, I, I think so. I might. My sense of it is that on-prem will exist, but it won't be the way that we see it today. So it's not going to be like the mainframe of the 1980s. It's still very similar to the mainframe in 2020, if that makes sense. Yeah. It's just bigger and faster and slightly more compact uh, for the same sort of uh, money. Uh, I think that on-prem has cost advantages, substantial cost advantages. The yep. Some of the research I've seen around public cloud suggests that it's anywhere from 50 to 100 times more expensive head-to-head. Uh, -head. Now, that does not mean it does not have the value. The question is, is it 50 to 100 times more valuable? 
than on-premise. And I suspect that over time we'll start to see people realising that uh, people keep saying, oh, AWS must be cheaper. Well, yes, if you just if you have a variable workload, if your company doesn't have cash or capital and you're stumbling along like a startup, mm-hmm. not knowing what you're doing or you're going broke, which is every just about all the value, all, the, all of the VC startups are all fundamentally going broke. It's just a question of how fast. Um, yep. Then that is a viable business model. But for more established businesses who have known profits and want known costs because they know what their revenues are going to look like and they don't expect to see 50% year-on-year growth, uh, I think there's going to be a whole uh, return to on-prem just as a form of cost management because uh, I've spoken to people in the cloud who are now got multiple headcount whose entire job it is just to manage the cost of the cloud. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right? absolutely. So instead of having a technologist delivering business value, their whole job is just to cut costs or manage costs, and that's not cost-effective. Yep. Hmm. But, you know, I mean, things things improve and things trickle down and, and, and you know, moments come along where technologies get easier to run uh, yourself. Hmm. Um, so, you know, I, yeah. I, 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 th- I think the really important thing with on-prem that, that will persist is that, um, network traffic on-prem is effectively free, um, yeah. whereas it, it costs you money every time you, you move something on or off uh, on or off your premises. Um, and there are certain applications where it's just not feasible to move all your data into the cloud, even if you do get the you know the Amazon truck or the Azure truck uh, or the IBM software that's very good at, at moving data around. Mm. Um, I, I think on on-prem is definitely here to stay. I mean, we know that density will improve, um, speed will improve, um, it, 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 and that the experience of using it will improve. It'll it, it'll get to be more fun. Um, but I think the thing that, that is probably going away is the big software install. Mm. Um, you know, the, the, the experience of having to stand up your own SAP um, yeah, on, doing on your, your own infrastructure. On-prem. Yeah. I yeah. suspect my guess there is that Kubernetes will transform that in the sense that instead of having to run one server with this and one server with this and one server with this, it'll come as a Kubernetes and you can scale however many boxes you want to assign to it and the containers will scale. Now, this is a fair way away, mind you. There'll Mm. still be a need to do on-prem of that for certain types of customers, but there'll be a way to say, I want to use 10 servers for that, and then the containers will distribute themselves across the available resource. Yep. And, you know, we're already seeing that it's possible to create a Kubernetes cluster that spans on-prem and multiple clouds, or at least in theory it is. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, so, you know, everything trends towards, towards flexibility and abstraction. Um, we'll see more of that, and, and the companies that make that easy to wield um, tend tend to do quite well. So I mean, what VMware's you know trying to do this week is 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 kind of imagine a world in which infrastructure as code almost includes the code saying, mm. and and this is the server that I need you to assemble for me to get this done now. It's also um, feature including parity, GPUs. I, I yeah. also think that VMware is starting to approach feature parity of the public clouds. So this idea of yeah. using SmartNICs means fully automated bare metal provisioning. So instead of having to rely on arcane Redfish specifications, the NIC will actually do it for you with a much richer, much more capable API um, yeah. and also solve problems around trust and image validation 
uh, and you know, is are the people in your um, you know, is the app that's running on your server actually doing Rowhammer or taking advantage of CPU? You know, how do you control that? Mm-hmm. You have to do it in a NIC. You know, you have to have a, a co-processor card, which is actually taking care of it. Yeah. You know, what and, if somebody in the know, operating system hijacks the BIOS, which they can do? Um, mm-hmm. How do you wipe the BIOS every time you re- restart the, the bare metal? Yeah. So, the, you know, I, I think there's a couple of things we sometimes forget. I mean, one is that, you know, we've only been doing this for about 30 years. Hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, we, 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 we get better at, uh, at building it and at operationalising it every year because we've just got more experience to draw on. Hmm. But the other thing is um, computers are good now and computers are cheap now. Hmm. You, you, you can buy a, a reliable, powerful computer to put anywhere and even five years ago, you know, I, I don't think that was quite the case. Yeah. Um, well, that's, you know, that, now that can, is opening up new markets. So yeah. we're now seeing a new market where the factory is a data centre because I'm going to fit it full yep. of uh, some sort of sensors and IoT edge. We're starting to see... Um, monitoring of cities, monitoring of traffic, instead of being, you know, a handful of sensors at traffic lights, it's going to be a much more comprehensive um, capability and the same for train lines. And so there's a whole range of new cases opened up by that at the same time that a lot of legacy IT is dying away too. I think you can't, you have to, uh, I, I believe that there's new markets opening up. There will be new roles for IT professionals that never existed before. Mm-hmm. Um, in these new areas. So you're n- not likely to see the end of your career yet. It's, it's, you know, the end of your career may come, but not before you retire because instead of working comfortably inside an enterprise, you might be actually be attached to a factory or some sort of um, sensor network, like a traffic system or whatever, doing that type of stuff. Yep. Either that or we'll all get jobs fixing self-driving Ubers. <laughs> yeah, that could be fun. On that note, thanks so much, Simon, for joining us today. It's been really great to have this conversation with you. Where can people find out more from you? Oh, look, uh, I am uh, at theregister.com. The register is now a .com. Uh, we figured, you know, time to yeah. give that a crack. Yeah, um, move forward. I'm out move on. on. Yeah, now that you're move, international. Move forward. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I did point out to the guys that uh, the uh, pseudo-Australian territory of Northern of um, Norfolk Island uh, still yep. has an internet registry, but they weren't so keen on that. Um, <laughs> and uh, you, you can also find me on Twitter where I'm uh, Sharwood. That's S-S-H-A-R-W-O-O-D, just as it yep. sounds. And Shyman uh, has been, as he said, been doing this for many years. He's been writing about technology, even from the deep dark before times. That's not just before COVID. That's before computers were really just computers. Uh, and it's been great to chat to you today. As always, this has been Packet Pushes. I've been Greg Farrow. Thanks very much for listening. You can find some show notes for this in our in your podcatcher. Not a lot of notes because this is just a straight-up discussion. But if you visit packetpushes.net, you can discover thousands of other episodes from across our podcast network, including our IPv6 Buzz podcast, the Day 2 Cloud, and the Network Break, where we wrap up the weekly news and try to analyse it and extract some signal from the noise um, and it's all focused at IT professionals and uh, and infrastructure professionals and especially networking professionals 
If you want to follow us on social media, of course, we're on Packet Pushes, LinkedIn, uh, and it would be super helpful if you'd rate us on your favorite podcast app, whether it's Overcast, Apple Podcasts, Google Play. Those ratings help us to stay in front of the audience and help us to be in business to bringing you this. And last but not least, as always, remember that too much technology would never be enough.